morning everybody. Very warm welcome to all of you and uh, particularly to those of you who are with us for the first time. It's very special to have you here with us. Everyone is very precious here but uh, it is particularly moving to think of the number of congregations uh, who are represented in the church this morning. It's, It's a great thought that isn't it? Won't you please have your Bibles open at Romans 8. Uh, Do make sure you've also got the bulletin open with the outline which will give you some idea of where we're going in the next couple of minutes. But uh, we need God's help, so let's have a moment of quiet. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the enormous privilege of an open Bible. And uh, in this season of Ramadan, we we think of those brothers and sisters for whom that is just not a possibility. So we don't take it lightly, and we ask that you would give us listening ears and soft hearts, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I wonder, what are you most looking forward to in life? Uh, Children, I think, generally look forward to growing up. Uh, Students are looking forward to the end of exams. Uh, Engaged couples are looking forward to their wedding day. Uh, Busy employees look forward to the holidays. Everybody is looking forward to something. It's actually part of what makes us human. And uh, that very basic human need is something that is picked up on in our passage this morning. Uh, For those of you who are with us for the first time, we are working slowly through Romans chapter 8. And uh, we've already discovered that the focus of this great chapter is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And uh, last week we learned that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to impress upon our hearts that we are God's children. Uh, And that includes assuring us that we are heirs of God. If you remember, that was Paul's message at the end of the passage we looked at last week. Just quickly come back to verse 17, if you will. In verse 17, Paul says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And uh, of course because we are children of God we have an inheritance to look forward to. That of course is a very familiar concept. Everybody wants to have an inheritance to look forward to. But uh, of course the inheritance that Paul is talking about is nothing like what most people think about today. We're not here talking about Auntie Mabel's silver candlesticks. Paul's got a very different kind of inheritance in mind. We're going to look more closely at it next week, but just to give you a preview of what our inheritance as Christians is all about, glance ahead to verse 29, giving you a sneak preview of next week, because in verse 29... Paul says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You see, our inheritance includes the fact that one day we will be like Jesus 
in every way. That means that we will enjoy the same quality of relationship with God the Father that Jesus is enjoying in heaven right now. But what will that be like? What will that actually feel like? C.S. Lewis was a genius, I think, at capturing the great truths of Scripture in images, in word pictures that even a little child can understand. And in one of his books, The Last Battle, he describes our inheritance, he describes what eternal life with Jesus is going to feel like in very moving words. I've put them for you on the back of the pink sheet. C.S. Lewis says this, The things that began to happen after were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. We can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream has ended, this is the morning. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they can begin chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that marvellous? In other words, you know, what lies ahead of us is so wonderful that when we get to heaven, our lives on earth will seem to have been nothing more than the cover and the title page of the most amazing book because the real story hasn't actually started. So Christians have a marvellous inheritance to look forward to. Uh, It's an eternity in which every chapter is better than the chapter before. But it's important to understand that our inheritance comes with a condition attached. And that condition is spelled out for us in verse 17. We just looked at it, but it's the end of the verse I want us to focus on. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, here's the condition. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now you see what he's saying is that if we're going to be confident Christians at knowing who we are, knowing where we're going, then Paul says we first need to understand something about the relationship between suffering and glory. And I want to start by making three initial observations about the Bible's teaching on suffering and glory because I think it's going to help us understand what Paul goes on to say about how you and I need to think about suffering in this life. You see, suffering is a normal part of Christian experience. But how are we to think about it? Well, first of all, in the Christian life, suffering and glory always belong together. Suffering always leads to glory, 
And glory is always preceded by suffering. Now you see, that was the pattern, wasn't it, in the life of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember, I think we looked at this together at Easter, that after his resurrection, Jesus met those disciples on the Emmaus Road. They were feeling rather depressed about his his death on the cross and they, they thought it was all a terrible, terrible mistake. But Jesus said something to them. This is what he said. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That's Luke 24 and verse 26. Can you see the sequence? For Jesus, it was suffering first and then glory afterwards. And what was true for the Lord Jesus is also true for all his followers. That's why, of course, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John sees the redeemed multitude which remember standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. And uh, when he asks them where they've come from, he's told that they've come out of the great tribulation. And since that great multitude is a reference to all the redeemed people of God, all true Christians, I take it that that phrase, the great tribulation, is a description of the Christian life. I wonder if you've thought of that before. I don't think we like that idea very much, but the plain message of Holy Scripture is that suffering and glory cannot be separated. And if I'm going to be a confident Christian, I must first of all come to terms with that reality. Second, In the New Testament, suffering and glory are categories that are used to define time. Now stay with me here. The New Testament, you see, divides time into two periods. Uh, Sometimes these periods are described as this present age and then there is the age to come. But what you and I need to understand this morning is that instead of these time periods being sequential, with one of them following the other, these time periods overlap. Now that's not especially easy for you and I to grasp. But the New Testament tells us quite clearly that the age to come has actually already started. It began with the first coming of Jesus. That's why in the Gospel of Mark, the very first words out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus are, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And you see, the defining characteristic of the time that Jesus was talking about is glory. And uh, we see a tiny glimpse of that glory today every time Jesus comes into the life of a person and turns that life round. That's why it was so very marvellous, I think, to hear a little bit about what God has been doing in Lyndon's life 
uh, over the last few months. You see, you and I can't always see, can we, what God is doing in our own lives. It's easier, I think, to see God at work in the life of somebody else. And when we see that, we are getting a little foretaste of the glory of the age to come. And of course, dear friends, the age to come lasts forever. The bad news, unfortunately, is that this present age hasn't finished yet. One day it will. But today we're living in the overlap between these two ages. And as we all know, the defining characteristic of this present age is suffering, and you don't need me to tell you that. So, what I'm trying to say to you is that the confident Christian looks at his life with all of its joys and with all of its troubles, and he recognises them as the normal experience of life in the overlap of two different time periods. And then the third thing to say is that suffering and glory are not comparable. They can't be compared. Yes, they are inseparable, but we shouldn't even try to compare them because the glory to come is so amazing. That, of course, is the astonishing claim that the Apostle Paul makes in verse 19. Please look at it. Sorry, verse 18. Verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I want to pause on that with you for just a moment. Because, you see, Paul says he's considered this. And the word that he uses there means that he has thought extremely carefully about it. That means he hasn't simply kind of rushed out of church on Sunday morning after a specially uplifting sermon and rushed into print. No, he's considered very carefully whether the suffering in the Christian life is actually worth it. Well, of course he did. Because apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody in the New Testament suffered more than the Apostle Paul. Do you remember? He was flogged. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned regularly. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was starved. He went sleepless for days at a time. And ultimately, of course, he died a martyr's death. Now, can I say to you that no one in their right minds would willingly endure that kind of suffering unless they were absolutely persuaded that it was worth it. I mean, they'd be mad to, wouldn't they? But you see, the Apostle Paul wasn't mad, was he? The general consensus among both Christian and non-Christian scholars is that Paul had one of the brightest and most balanced minds in all of human history. And Paul's claim is that our present sufferings cannot be compared to the glory that lies ahead of us because the glory to come is infinitely greater. 
So I think the question this morning is, why should we believe him? What evidence can the Apostle Paul give us to support that claim? Well, in this passage, he points to three things that all have something in common. All three of them are groaning. And their groans are teaching us an extremely important lesson. As you can see from the outline, there is the groaning creation, the groaning church, and the groaning Holy Spirit. All three things groaning in this passage. Firstly then, the groaning creation, verses 19 to 22. Now you'll notice that creation is mentioned four times in those verses, once in each verse. In verse 20, Paul says that creation has been subjected to, notice the word, frustration. Uh, Some of us in the City Partnership have been working through the book of Ecclesiastes recently. That is an Ecclesiastes word. It is, in Hebrew, it's the word meaningless. And meaningless is the word that Ecclesiastes uses to talk about all human experience when God is shut out of the picture. And the message in the book of Ecclesiastes is that if you live your life without reference to God, then you will find your work doesn't satisfy you, your relationships are shallow, and the approach of old age and death is meaningless, filled with frustration. And you'll find yourself asking, well, what was it all for? I mean, was there a purpose? Why couldn't I find it? And by using that same word, frustration, in verse 20 of Romans 8, Paul is reminding us that ever since Adam turned his back on God, creation has had the same experience. It's been incapable of fulfilling the purpose for which God made it. And that's why in verse 22, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. See, what the Apostle is saying is, I want you to just stop and I want you to look around at the world out there and I want you to notice that there is something horribly incoherent about it. It is obviously not working as it should. If you like, it's it's malfunctioning. Now, of course, there's so much, isn't there, in nature that is breathtakingly beautiful, and we have more than our fair share of that here in Cape Town. But can I remind you, on the other hand, that climate change is apparently costing the global economy $1.2 trillion every year. $1.2 trillion. And of course we know all about that, don't we, with the drought here in the Western Cape. And the experts say that climate change is directly responsible for 400,000 deaths a year globally. 
Even more depressing than that, the scientists say that food production can't actually keep up with the, the, uh, the increase in the world population. And uh, they're saying that apparently by the year 2050 we're all going to have to be vegetarians. That means no more brides on Sunday. Now, you, you know, you can smile at these things, but these malfunctions in creation are extremely serious. They're telling us, they're little pointers, aren't they, that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. What is it? Is there a solution? Well, the Bible's answer is that creation is malfunctioning because we human beings have refused to run it in the way that God intended. One of the commentators suggests, I think, an absolutely brilliant analogy to help us understand these, these terrible groans in creation. This is what he says, and I quote, Imagine a great orchestra and choir gathered in a magnificent concert hall. They're going to perform Handel's Messiah. Uh, the instruments are all there, each one ready to make its distinctive, unique contribution to the overall harmony. The choir are standing there, ready to burst into the Alleluia Chorus. There is a sense of eager anticipation. Everyone wants the performance to begin. But the whole scene is frozen. It's in a state of suspended animation. In fact, it's been frozen into immobility for so long that there is a thick layer of dust on the violins and cobwebs have stained the soprano's gown. What's gone wrong? Well, the performance can't begin until the conductor takes the rostrum. Everyone's waiting, everything's ready. But the conductor has got such a perverse temperament that he's decided he would rather write his own music than beat time to the music of someone else. And if we go and look for him, we find the conductor in his dressing room humming tuneless ditties and practising dramatic sweeps of his conducting baton by himself in the mirror. End quote. Now, friends, you can't actually have a more tragic picture than that, can you? But you see, what he's saying is that is precisely what you and I have done. We are the conductor in that story. We are the problem. You and I are meant to be conducting the orchestra of creation. But although God has written the most beautiful music for the orchestra, we've decided we don't like it very much. And so what we've done is we've retreated into our dressing room to write our own music. What a mess we've made of it. No wonder creation is groaning. But there is hope. There is hope. Because verse 19 says... The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And what Paul is saying is that when that happens, the concert can begin. 
A time is coming when creation will fulfil its original purpose. But when will that happen? When will that happen? Well, it's, it's when the true children of God are revealed. But when will that be? How do we know when that's going to happen? Well, the verb translated eagerly awaits is used just seven times in the New Testament and on every single occasion it's talking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to take you to one example. Keep a finger please in Romans 8 and come with me to Philippians chapter 3 on page 832. Philippians chapter 3 page 832 and uh, we'll pick it up at verse 18 Philippians 3 verse 18 Paul writes this for as I have often told you before and now say again even with tears many live as enemies of the cross of Christ Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we, here it comes, eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you see? You see, the event that that Paul is eagerly awaiting in Philippians 3 is exactly the same event that creation is eagerly awaiting in Romans chapter 8. And Philippians helps us realise that the groans of creation are pointing us forward to the return of the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he's going to transform the bodies of all true Christians to be like his glorious body. And that'll be the amazing moment, the great moment, when the groans of creation will cease And the concert that creation has been waiting to give can actually start. Well, come back to Romans 8. Because secondly, there's not just a groaning creation, there is a groaning church. Verses 23 to 25. Now, if you ask um, any doctor who's worked in hospital for more than a few weeks, uh, they will tell you that experience has taught them to distinguish between two different types of groan. So you see, on the one hand, there is the groan of the terminally ill patient. Uh, they're, They're in the final throes of one of the many deadly diseases that cause such misery in Africa today and their groan is one of sheer despair no hope no hope but in the maternity ward there is an altogether different kind of groan isn't there 
Yeah, I mean, the suffering is real. The pain is intense. But the context is different, isn't it? And in between the groans, there is this marvellous air of expectation. There's kind of a note of optimism. Because everybody knows that something new and wonderful and beautiful is about to happen. Now, the groaning that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 is of that second kind. Do you see in verse 22, just have a look at verse 22, Paul says that creation's groaning is as in the pains of childbirth. And then he says in the very next verse, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan. You see, what he's saying is that we groan in exactly the same way as creation. But please will you notice that the people who are groaning like that are not the human race in general, no, no. They are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, they're born-again Christians. And yet they're groaning. Why? Well, you see, do you remember we said at the beginning that you and I are living in the overlap of two different periods, two different time periods. This present age, which hasn't finished yet, and the age to come, which has started, but one day will be infinitely more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. Now, the point that Paul is making in verse 22 is that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he gives us a foretaste of the life to come. He opens our eyes to grasp what it means to be saved from the wrath of God and to be adopted into God's family. And those things are a real cause for rejoicing. Amen? Amen. But you see, the Spirit also teaches us that until Jesus returns, we're still living in this present age where, quite frankly, there's a great deal to groan about. One Christian writer puts it like this. He says, quote, Our lives consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and in the lives of those we love. And we groan because we see possibilities that are not being captured and employed. And then we groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives and we would love to see something else happening. And then he says it's recorded that as he drew near the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus groaned in his spirit because he was so burdened by the ravages that sin had made in a believing family. He groaned even though he knew he would soon raise Lazarus from the dead. And so we groan in our spirits. We, we groan in disappointment, in bereavement, in sorrow. We groan physically in our pain and limitation. Life consists, he says, of a great deal of groaning. Well, I think he's right. But you see, the point we've got to get hold of is that the confident Christian is a realistic Christian. 
because he knows that until the Lord Jesus returns, he's not going to be delivered from the ongoing taint of sin in his life and he won't be clothed with his resurrection body. And uh, can I say, when we talk like that, you know, we're not dealing in abstract categories. These are practical day-to-day things. As some of you know, my, my day off is a Friday and uh, weather permitting, I enjoy going and playing golf on a Friday morning. And whenever I do that, I'm always reminded of two things. Number one, I have not yet been fully delivered from my sinful nature. That usually comes home to me on the second hole. And I'm also reminded that I don't yet have a resurrection body. Now, if you think either of those things have already happened to you, won't you come and tell me about it afterwards? Now, you see, these things lie in the far distant future. They're going to be wonderful, and we're eagerly looking forward to them. But in the meantime, groaning is part of normal Christian experience. But Paul's point is that, rightly understood, the groans of creation and the groans of the church are reliable indicators that the glory to come is infinitely greater than present suffering. That's the thing to take away. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Lastly and quickly, there is a third groan. It's actually the most astonishing groan of the lot. The groaning Holy Spirit in verses 26 and 27. Now, I think, I don't know whether you agree with this, I think every Christian will testify that he or she tends to give more time and attention to prayer when life is difficult than when it is comparatively plain sailing. Is that right? Our times of groaning naturally lead us to pray. And I think that makes what Paul has to say in verse 26 actually rather surprising. Just have a look at it. He says, we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now think about that. I think that's rather odd. You see, when Gillian or one of the girls are sick, I think I know precisely what to pray for. I want God to make them better. I don't need any help. I don't need to be told that. But you see, here Paul is not actually talking about the specific details of our prayers. No, he's saying that when the Christian prays, the Holy Spirit does two things for us that you and I could never do for ourselves. First, he he reminds us that all the pain of our messed up world as it affects us is just labour pains, it's not death throes. We've already spoken about that. And in our pain, the Holy Spirit reminds us that we've been made for something better, infinitely better, and it will come. But secondly, now listen to this, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, literally, the original phrase is translated, he intercedes for us with wordless groans. That's what the phrase means. Now think about that. 
When we pray, the Spirit of God prays to God the Father on our behalf. That is an amazing thought. It's saying to us that God prays to God on a level that is so deep that it needs no words. And because the Spirit prays perfectly in accordance with the will of God, which, by the way, you and I can never do, his prayers are sure to be answered. They're guaranteed to be answered. And that is why at the end of verse 25, Paul says that because we know our inheritance is guaranteed and because we know that God is praying to God on our behalf, the confident Christian will wait through suffering patiently. Well, let's ask for God's help to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us that one day every single one of your children will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Jesus. What a privilege to be able to look forward to such a glorious inheritance. But you've also reminded us that following in the footsteps of Jesus means suffering now before the glory to come. And so there are times when we groan inside. But in those moments, Lord, help us to remember what lies ahead so that our groaning will be positive and faithful and hopeful. Guard our hearts against unbelieving complaining. And thank you that in our times of suffering, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And because he prays perfectly in accordance with your will, we know that you will do everything necessary to bring us safely through every trial and test and on to that great and glorious day when we will see Jesus face to face. Thank you, Lord.